coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Watch out, your Wi-Fi stack is under attack. But don't worry, Apple's got your patch. Then, did you know all it takes to hack an ATM is $15, the right size drill bit, and a lot of ingenuity. And Dan has another famous Dan deep dive, this time on Let's Encrypt. Plus, we've got your favorites, your feedback, a rambunctious roundup, and so much more. Stay tuned for this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on April 4th, 2017, and is episode 313. It's brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is, is our host with the most, the admin, the organizer, and the explainer, our friend, Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. Oh, Hello, audience. Wonderful to see you. Look at your wonderfully bright orange shirt there. Yes, what, uh, yes, yes. what conference or other event is that from? Mm, Philadelphia. Um, bike race. Oh, cool. That's great. So you're a biker then? A uh, mountain biker. Oh, uh, but I, I like marshalling the the race in, in the Maniunk area. Okay. Um, I don't think it happened this past year, but I have I haven't marshaled for a couple of years because I've been out of town at the time of the race. I see you're a busy man. So, anything new yes, you'd like to report to our wonderful audience? Yes, over oh, here. Oh, over here. Let me move this over here. Sure. Okay. So, remember last week had trouble with my laptop, right. and I had to sort of. Well, I should have brought the laptop in here. It's now a shell, a literal shell. I took it apart, took the main board out. And it's a complicated procedure, but it's all on YouTube. Uh, and I took the main board out, wrapped it up, and shipped, shipped it off to someone to fix it. Nice. So, I mean, except for the having to wrap it up and send it away part. Yeah. Well, my girlfriend Kathy had this TV that when you turned it on, it would screech like a banshee. <sighs> yeah, I've and had this it, before. You, you, you've had that? Yes. Oh, God. So what would happen? Pretty much that. I mean, uh, I think for me, after a while, it would kind of settle into a steady state where it was just kind of a background whine kind of thing. But for the first three minutes or so, it was unbearable. Well, hers would switch on, do that horrible sound, <laughs> then power itself off, come back up with that sound, then power itself off, and th Yikes. then come back on, it would be okay. So then you're just like, all right, well... Don't touch it. Uh, leave it on for the rest of the week. So there's no watching TV early in the morning when someone else is sleeping. No. <laughs> uh, yikes. So, so do, have you gotten a new TV? No. What happened to your TV? Yeah, I think uh, actually it was a roommate's TV. So thankfully it's no longer okay. in my life. Uh, well, Kathy one night Googled and she found a YouTube video of the exact problem she was having. Really? Hey. It was linked to from an eBay article for sale. And there was this chap who said, I know what's wrong with your TV. If you take the main board out and here are the instructions to do so, send it to me. I'll fix it. I'll send it back to you. Wow. Put it back in your TV. Be good as new. And she bought it and she did that. And it works beautifully now. Oh, that's great. Absolutely beautifully. 
I was very impressed. Yeah. That the internet really coming through there. Yeah. So the same thing that that led me to doing this for my laptop because I was looking for for a new mainboard. Right. They're four hundred and fifty bucks. Ah. So then I looked at buying the same model laptop broken. I see. Just a four parts yeah. laptop. Like a dead screen yep. or something like that. That's a good idea. Or, you know, you can buy them where, oh, uh, the Wi-Fi doesn't work or, you know, especially broken keys. Broken keys are good. No one wants to buy a laptop with a broken key. But if everything else is fine, I could just move it in. But I figured what I'd do is I'd ship it off to this guy. He reballs the graphic card. That, wow. So that's that. Interesting. So basically... These chips don't have pins anymore. They have these little solder balls. Right. On the okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so one of them is broken or something like that. And so if it's necessary, he will redo that. That's see, I have some. I know a couple of people who have like they can fix some electronics for me. But it's really nice to hear like there's some options out there hmm. if you don't know someone like that. Well, I emailed the person and said, "This is a model of my board. This is blah blah. This is blah blah." This is what happens. Here's the screenshots. Have I chosen the right product? And he says, yes, that's it. Got it. And so I took it all apart and then said, oh, because the next set of instructions were remove the microphone, remove the heat sink. But they had an article on the post about uh, heat sink and copper shims, which aren't needed and stuff like that. So I emailed them back and said, should I remove the microphone and heat sink? Nope. Leave nope. them on. Hey, great. Awesome. Even less so, work for you. Very, very quick responses, and it's it's been shipped off to somewhere in California, and it arrived on Saturday. So today's only Tuesday, so it's only they've only had it three days, two of which was the weekend. So maybe it'll get shipped back this week. But That'd be awesome. I'm not not holding my breath. Fingers crossed we'll, that we'll by next see. week's episode, we'll yeah. you'll have happy news for us. Yeah, and this is all because of my girlfriend. Thanks, Kathy. We appreciate. Thanks, it. Kathy. Well, I think we've got a pretty awesome show for people today. So. Uh, Let's let's get right into it. First up, Apple's got some news. We talk a fair bit on this program about their products, uh, especially relating to security. So, what's the latest? There was a re- ten point three came out last week, the week before. I know I, I upgraded right away. I tend to upgrade my my phone as soon as I can. Um, well, what came out just yesterday? was iOS 10.3.1. And that usually doesn't happen. You don't get a major release and then a minor release unless something's... Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty quick. Yeah. You, you, you will get one if the previous release broke something, mm. but that's not what happened here. What happened here is a security fix. And it's not a security fix to fix software. It's a security fix to fix hardware, in a way, because it's a stack buffer overflow on the Wi-Fi chip. So it allowed uh, an attacker within range may, that's the keyword, may be able to execute arbitrary code on the Wi-Fi chip. And it's a Stack Overflow, and it came out of Project Zero. And it was published yesterday, which is the same date as the fix. So that's that's fine. So I was trying to think, what could we talk about here? And Alan gave me a great idea. He said, talk about buffer overflows. Because you hear about these all the time, but what's right a for a lot of people, overflow? like that might not mean anything. So 
I started thinking about it and I started thinking about where have I used buffers and why, why does it matter? Well, it took me back to Algonquin College in, in Ottawa, Canada. Oh, that's great. It was a little, it's a community college and it had courses that anyone could go to, including me. Nice. And so I went, I was a high school student. Oh, that's great. And they had a night course on assembly language programming. Oh man, that sounds that sounds awesome. So, I know I was taking the bus out there. So I'm guessing I wasn't old enough to drive yet. So I know when I moved to Ottawa. So I'm guessing I was 14 or 15 taking this course. And I remember we worked on. Uh, I think it was deck uh, dot matrix printers. So basically, it had line flow paper that came out through it. Remember, 132 characters wide. Big bo- There's a box about that big filled uh, with paper, and it sat underneath. And it totally. So it's like a line printer, but it was just a dot matrix mechanism that went back and forth. Yes, I remember so, those. And they, oh, I, I can just hear the sound that they make as well right in the back of my mind. There you go. So that's what we coded on. And... Because it's assembly language, you know, you wind up getting introduced to the term of the call stack. But before we get to the call stack, I want to talk about, um, I went to the Wikipedia entry article. So basically, in software, a stack buffer overflow or stack buffer overrun occurs when a program writes to a memory address on the program's call stack outside of the intended data structure, which is usually a fixed length buffer. What does that mean? That's a lot of jargon. That's a lot of jargon. So let's go further down. Um, Let's talk about what a stack is. So click onto the next one. And a stack is a very, is a, a data structure which is very near and dear to my heart. And we'll find out why very soon. So basically, think of a stack as a, Literally, think of it as a stack of boxes. You get something, you put it on the ground. You get the next thing, you put it on top of that box. You get the next thing, put it on top of that. Now, when you want to take something off, you take it off the top, put it somewhere else, and you're done. So, basically, you have a stack of boxes, and that's how that works. So, but, why is this relevant? Oh, wait, 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 wait. So, when you put a box on the floor, that's a push, when you take a box off the stack, that's a pop. That'll come back into it soon. Now, later on down here, totally random stuff, it talks about different implementations of stacks. It talks about an array and a linked list. And this reminds me of my honors thesis at Carleton University. Hopefully good my, memories. It is. It, it was really cool. I did an honors thesis on the merging of N-based heaps, which is what is that? Uh, it, it's a way of sorting data. So a heap is a data structure, right. and it can be implemented. It's sort of like a binary tree, but not exactly binary. You can have multiple, um, not not just not two just children, two, but you right? Right. five, ten, fifteen. So my honest thesis was on how you how you can merge heaps, and the way that we proved the theory was by either implementing the heaps as an array or as a linked list. And when you move things around in a linked list, you just change pointers. Right, exactly. 
the change is instantaneous. But when you move things around an array, you have to move things. Yes. So the number of things you move is sort of related to the number of things below that tree, point in the tree. So that would demonstrate that the algorithm was order O log N instead of just N or something. Um, you'd have to look up my paper to find out. But, anyway, <laughs> right. so. but those, the, those sorts of semantics and, um, you know, complexity, scaling complexity, the, uh, you know, they matter to how you end up using those, those data structures. It, exactly. And that's the reason that it causes a big problem is so these stacks that grow up are first in last out or last in first out depending on it is last in first out so LIFO or FIFO stacks and queues can both be implemented nearly the same way except that queues come off the oldest item comes off right the they queue. preserve so the, the order one. of yeah right Whereas stack is is a stack of boxes, whereas a queue is stuff that you push through on a conveyor on a set of rollers, and the first one to come out is the first one that was put in. So anyway, stacks. Why are stacks important? Well, imagine that you're doing some assembly language programming, and you have to call a subroutine to do something. We don't know what, but you have to do something. So what you do is you have this special part of memory. Usually, it's let, let, let's just say you use the top of memory to keep all your notes and the bottom of memory is all your code. So what happens is uh, your, your code is executed from the bottom up and your stack grows from the top down. So what you do when you have to save something onto the stack, you pop it. And so you put it up at the top of memory and you increment a pointer and keep track of where it is. And so when you're about to call a subroutine, what you do is you save the address that you're executing now so that when the subroutine is done, it knows where to return to. Now, how you exploit this is you find something that allows you to overwrite this stack up at the top of memory and change the address that you're going to return to. And that address will be your own code, the code that the attacker has written. And so when you do your magic stuff and it goes to return, it starts executing your code. And so here you are as an attacker executing your code of choice on somebody else's machine because of a stack overflow bug. Yikes. So. Um, and this is a pretty common thing, right? Like this is one of the reasons um, people are pushing to get mm -hmm. things written or one of the advantages of writing in a memory managed language where maybe you have better control of this or you're not manually man managing your own stack. Well, one of the most common things are, are buffer overflows. And sometimes when you can overflow a buffer, you can write arbitrary data there. And right. at some time in the future, you can run that data if, you, if need be. That's the goal, yes, is to exactly. find a buffer overflow and then later on run that code. And people spend lots of time trying to do that. And that's what, how... Uh, random random stack location and non-executable uh, areas of memory. Right, I was about to say that's one of the reasons for um, for wanting to implement that, right? Is so that you'd be like, hey, no, this this is my code, yep. this is this my is data. This is your data. Don't you mix You can't them. execute your data. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And so this, and uh, so 10.3.1 is, is fixing this vulnerability. 10.3.1, it makes sure that someone with within range can't just uh, execute arbitrary code on your Wi-Fi Hey, chip. I like that. 
and it affects iPhone 5 and later, iPad 4th generation and later, and iPod Touch generation 6 and later. So, update. Interesting. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, so you said you've already done the update on, on your devices. On this one? And I don't know where the other one is. My other phone's gone somewhere. But do you, yeah. do you know, were there any, um, like, did Apple discover this? Or were there real world that no. counts? No. It came from Project Google Project Zero. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And they do such great work over there. That's Absolutely. They're good. Yeah, exactly. It's great to see this, you know, cross, even though if, even though Google and Apple may be, you know, big rivals in, men, in many areas that you can work together here and make a safer community for everyone. Full disclosure, I work for Cisco. We do the same sort of stuff. Yeah, right. Awesome. Well, uh, I think that naturally brings us to our first sponsor this week. That's our friends over at Ting. Head on over to ting.com, techsnap.ting.com, I should say. What you'll find there is a mobile company that's on a mission to make mobile make sense. They do things differently. They're not like your average giant mega carrier that wants to sell you cable and TV and internet and advertise and take your data and sell it. Who knows where? No, Ting is different. Ting is focusing on a simple platform, a platform that's easy to use, that you won't be confused about, and that starts at just $6 a month. That's right, $6 a month, everyone. You heard it here first. From there, you just pay for what you use. That's one of the great things about Ting. You don't have to decide, uh, uh, well, I use like 300 minutes normally, but sometimes, well, my aunt, you know, she's going on a trip and I'm going to want to call her. So that month, I guess I'll need more, but, uh, and then you end up either you get overage charges or you end up overpaying all the other months. Don't do that. We have a better way now. Go to, go to techsnap.ting.com. Then you'll get a $25 service credit. And at $6 a month, I mean, that's going to last you for a while. It paid for more than my first month. I think it pays for more than a lot of people's first months, especially if you're Wi-Fi savvy. And if you are, boy, Ting is your best friend. Go check out their blog. They're cord cutters, just like us. They don't, you know, they don't use a ton of minutes, probably. They, they're, they're fans of the data, and they want to give you app suggestions and other things to help you use their plans to the very best. Plus, they're just friendly folks. That's another thing about Ting. They don't have to concentrate on building more data networks or, you know, building the next version of LTE. No, they can focus on what matters, and that's you, right? So they have a wonderful app. Uh, it's very useful. You can do anything that you need to do with Ting on the app. Same with their website. Very clear, nice, responsive design, works wonderfully. Or, or you know, maybe you're, maybe you're old school. Maybe you like talking to people in person, or I mean, not in person, uh, over the phone. Just call them up. Call them right up. You'll talk to a real human being who will make sure that you've gotten everything that you need. It's awesome. Some of the other benefits of Ting, no contracts or early termination fees. Yeah, that's right. You come, you want to stay for a month? Great. You want to leave? Go. That's fine. Ting's not going to... Ting is honey badger. It doesn't It doesn't care. It's not, it's not jealous. It knows that you'll go back to one of those other carriers and be like, wait, no, this sucks. I'm going back to Ting. Plus, you get, you know, all the standard stuff. Tethering. Yeah, you don't have to pay extra for tethering. Data's just data. Three-way calling, voicemail, all that stuff. So check it out today, techsnap.ting.com. You can bring your own device. If you have an iPhone, you want to get the latest thing. Ting does not get in the way of the updates. Or if you're on Android, I've got a pixel on Ting myself. It's been great. So techsnap.ting.com. All righty then, Mr. Dan, back to our big stories this week. Yeah. Before we go to the big story, I want to talk about a little story. Oh. Um, 
Do you, do you, I pasted you a URL. I want to talk about that R610 that uh, uh, an unnamed source gave me just a little while ago. Um, it It is connected to my LTO4 tape library. And every month, uh, right after the first Sunday, which was just a few days ago, I back up to disk. And then later on, I copy all of those backup files to tape. Now, the problem with that is it's going from a machine with a 10-gig NIC to a machine with a 1-gig NIC. And so, of course, the bottleneck is the R610. And I've, I learned that the R610 had a spare slot. I didn't know this when I got it, but it has, two empty, it had, it has room for two expansion cards, one of which was filled with a SAS card, which is what my tape library is filled into plugged into and so this afternoon over lunch I opened it up and found that I could plug it in um Wes do you have that other URL yeah here well here's the here's the here's a tweet oh, from yours there truly yeah so click on the first photo there please so what I did is I opened up the case and I'm looking this is looking back so the rear of the case is to the right okay that makes and sense in, and in the background there on the right, just over top of the EI logo, you can see the SAS card. There's two ports for the SAS card there. So I took this photo so I could see what was on the other side because you can't actually stand on the other side because it's against the wall, uh, as you'll see if you click the next photo. So it's next. sort of like that. Hey, look at that. That's a that's a pretty little machine there. Thank you. So there's... And what I love about this is it comes all the way out of the rack and you can, uh, that black lever there, you sort of lift that up and the whole lid just comes right off. Next photo, please. So here you can see where I've, uh, you can sort of see the locking mechanism. If you look at the, the, the face plate on the card, on the left it loops into this little um, socket and then on the right you can see uh, just off screen this purpley or blue knob and then a little vacant place down below where you can click in uh, you slide that down that locks the card in place nice. so if you next photo please the next photo shows that little blue locky thing in place and there it's done it's locked now this is actually the this is a 10 gig net Nick, and those two cables in the back with the circles on them, those are plugged in the card over on the right, and that leads to the tape library further down. Oh, and with that, I was able to run all my backup jobs, copy over about 500 gig, might have been more than 500 gig, I think it was near, yes. Must be 750 gig, 800, excuse me, gig in an afternoon. Wow, that's awesome. Tape in an afternoon. And that is really nice. Oh, yeah. I'm really impressed with that. Now I can turn that off for the next month. I don't need it running. That's great. Uh, so you have a FreeBSD on that uh, R630? Yeah, uh, the R610. I, sorry, yeah. sorry, we just got some R630s at work, so that's on my brain. So this is uh, FreeBSD 11. And I don't know what else I'm going to do with it. I have two spare uh, SSDs that I may put in here. Oh, nice. I, don't, I don't think I need to start um, uh, spooling to disk because I think over 10 gig 
Nick, I can I can supply enough data, but I'm not sure. Oh, that's uh, exciting. Uh, I did a I did another post earlier on in the day, something about how how much data was going at once. But there's about six or eight jobs spooling, uh, writing to the tape all concurrently. Oh, cool. So that winds up, you know, your job is here, 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 and here along the tape instead of like that. Uh, yes. But that means when you're reading it back, you'll read some, discard, read some, discard. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. Uh, tape backup will be my last recourse because I have copies on disk. Right. So this is only, you can put up with some delay as long as you get your data back and yes. shouldn't happen very often. Yes. So. So do you have that, that, much uh, 10 gig in other parts of your house slash network or is this the first? Uh, I have... I have four 10 gig NICs. Okay. And two of those boxes are up now. The other two aren't up very often. But I did look at buying two more for the R410s, mm-hmm. but the R410s aren't powered up now. I see. So that makes we'll sense. See. I mean, we don't want yeah. to get it too hot in there. I know it's probably already like 80 degrees. Let's see. Let's see, folks. Yeah, that's right. Like a Ooh, nice and toasty. It is. It, um, the the fan on the uh, R six ten for some reason when I power it off it keeps going full. Like when it's powered on it's quiet I can't hear it but when I power it off it goes <laughs> spins right up. Who knows oh, why? Why are you spinning? Yeah, audience, if you know why, please tell me. Exactly. Uh, All right. So next story. Yes, story. Um, we hear a lot of people stealing money from banks and how they do it and stealing money from ATMs. And I like this one because this one was really simple. Um, we've long said that if you have physical access to a computer, it's not secure. So yep. all bets are off. Although there was a very interesting thread on you i think it was on usenet years ago i think it was on on novell networks forum or something where they eventually delved into laser beams and stuff like that to secure a computer it was all a discussion it wasn't wow. actual right right but it was just an ongoing discussion over a long period of time it's legendary maybe we should look that up one I day i think we should so the article Hackers are emptying ATMs with a single drilled hole and $15 worth of gear. So this is a tutorial, right? It is. Unfortunately, I thought it was like, a, you know, a three-eighths inch drill. We're talking no. something a little beefier. More like a golf, golf ball. Right. So um, basically, there was a while ago when people would just blow up an ATM or steal an ATM and then work on that later. But, um, and we've heard of having card skimmers and stuff in ATMs, but th- this is even, even more interesting. Um, basically, the police turned up, they arrested, a sus- they, they arrested a suspect, and they found a laptop along with a cable that he'd snuck in through this hole. And that's it. That's all that they were doing a laptop, some wiring. That was it. So, Kaspersky started looking into it. They had the same model of ATM, and then they started trying to find out what they did. They removed the front panel instead of drilling. But inside, they found a serial port. And that serial port ran to a wire 
that went through the ATM's internal bus of components. And it was the dispenser that controls its user interface to the cash. Sorry, it was the computer that controlled the user interface to the cash dispenser. So basically, the computer's over here, the cash dispenser is over here, it's a serial cable, and there's nothing on there to protect it. If you can get access to that cable, you can make it dispense cash. Wow. And that's what they're doing. They were just drilling a hole, putting a little cable in, tap, 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 give me cash. That's so simple and uh, kind of genius for its simplicity. I mean, why bother? You know, you don't need to You don't need to hack. You don't need to find a vulnerability. Just the physical one. That's wild. Yep. So they must have got hold of one, figured out how to do it. Now, what I find interesting about this is um, Kaspersky figured out that their finished tool could trigger the cash dispenser within seconds of connecting and then spew as many bills as they wanted. The only limit to the attack's speed came when the ATM's computer noticed, in quotes, the dispenser acting independently and rebooted. I so see. I imagine, imagine a reboot might become suspicious. I say, oh, the computer rebooted. But I wouldn't be surprised if ATMs randomly boot from time to time and no one would notice. Right. And you have to wonder, like, how much... On there, you know, a lot of them end up with like very limited uplink sorts of things, right? So you wonder like how many operational metrics are they really sending or communicating? I'll bet all they send is a uh, card number, pin, cash. Yeah, right. You get That's, the get the know, code back and a lot of data at all. Yeah. I'm sure. And I've also heard of attacks that break into the communications channel. Yes, I've heard of that too. So, so. ATM security seems like it's very difficult to get right um not only do you have vested interests legacy software stacks but also you're just putting this device to distribute money out in the general public and there's so many ways that you can you know just get that wrong and the banks don't build them right exactly they get them from third parties so you don't and the third parties say trust us trust us yes trust us we've got it right and i know i I certainly see like a pretty wide variability in terms of design you know design differences Mm -hmm. things that seem more or less secure even just like how many warnings or the the you know how good are the warnings to say Mm -hmm. like if you see something suspicious call this number some of them don't have anything you're like all right well maybe i'll leave a note for the next guy uh voting machines are the same way i think yeah, there's not enough scrutiny. The no, voting machines have a totally different uh, attack vector, and and the reason for attacking is not right, necessarily financial. But but yeah, I I think that the scrutiny for both needs to be a lot higher. Mind you, the only money being taken from the ATM is the bank's money. It's not your money, right. not my money. Right. So it's in the bank's interest to do it a little bit better. Whereas the voting machines, ooh, anyway. Back to here. The, they reboot it. So, But the researchers say they could extract thousands of dollars before the reboot kicked in, and afterward they could simply repeat their attack, pulling more cash out of the machine until it was empty. Who's going to notice? Wow. No one. Yeah, no one. I think, it, I think it's pretty cool. That is actually pretty cool. I'm sure they were very pleased when, uh, when it worked. I guess you have to. You just, the the trick crazy. is just a right to. You have to go find an ATM where you can start start working on these things. I wonder how hard I it is. Think, I don't think it's all that difficult. No, I'm sure. I'm sure it's not. 
it seems like the theme here is that they're you know they're not closely monitored and it takes a lot to to get caught i i i vaguely recall pulling my suv up onto the sidewalk to an atm and conducting my transaction and leaving that was in my youth (laughs) nice yeah anyway totally yeah Uh, uh they say the drill, te- uh, sorry, the drill technique represents a simpler and stealthier approach to an ATM's innards. Breaching a bank's back-end network requires far more sophisticated network intrusion skills, while opening the machine's panel to plant malware or to connect a tool directly to the cash dispenser triggers an alarm. Sorry, I was getting more sorry. But drilling a gaping hole in the front of the machine, in this case, doesn't set off that same warning. So really, they got sec- they've got to better secure the cable, or at least put a protocol over it that isn't just simply skimmed. Yeah, skimmed. yeah, right, exactly. Make it so that I have to authenticate or have a key or or something, or even that if it's even a, if just obfuscated, right? I mean, that would be a step. That'd be a lot of money. Yes. They, they did. They did say something about that. They did. They did say something about about it. Uh, the researchers spent five solid weeks with an oscilloscope, oscilloscope, and logic analyzer decoding the protocol. Uh, of the okay, so it wasn't as simple as uh, yeah. send, print. You know, they found that five. the machine's only encryption, only encryption, was a weak XOR cipher they were <laughs> able to easily break, and there was no real authentication between the machine's modules. The classic it, original <laughs> cipher, XOR. Yeah. In practical terms, that means that any part of the ATM could essentially send commands to any other part, allowing an attacker to spoof commands to the dispenser, giving them the appearance of coming from the ATM's own trusted computer. Yikes. Really is very clever. I'm I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And Kaspersky leaves... Four computers that are left standing unprotected on a dark street in the middle of the night, stuffed full of money, a little more thought to digital security might be a worthwhile investment. Amen. <sighs> Anything else you'd like to add? If anyone has heard more about this, if you, if you read another article about this, send it in to us. Yes, I'd be very do. interested in finding out more. I'm sure Kaspersky has, has posted about it, but... And I think this is uh, this is one of my favorite little subtopics uh, in the TechSnap history. I've always enjoyed the the reports on ATM machines in the prior incarnation of this show. So it's a something I'd like us to continue. And I know I have fun covering. it. Uh, I, I remember Alan doing doing a, a post about ATMs, and it did talk about security between the different modules. But I, I don't remember how long ago it was. I remember that one. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, if you take security, physical security, digital security seriously, you might want to talk to our next sponsor, our friends over at IX Systems. Maybe, maybe you need to have a you know a computer in a, un- a secure environment, an unsecure environment, or you just have various needs. They understand that your server is meant to be custom. What is IX Systems? IX Systems is the premier hardware supplier that you wish you had known about years ago. So now you do. Now you do. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. They make awesome servers powered by incredible Intel processors. Got the latest and greatest, whatever you need. They have, they have, plus, I mean, I just mentioned Intel, but they have great relationships with all their hardware providers to make sure that you get the server that you need. The first difference you'll notice with IX 
it's the experience of talking with them. It's not go to the website. I mean, they have a great website. Go there. Check out their blog. They always have great stuff on the blog. I really do recommend it, um, especially if you're interested in file systems, storage, OpenZFS, any of it. But just give them a call. Just give them a call and you will be so surprised. They have an awesome staff of talented sales engineers ready to help you. And these guys are really, they're engineers, right? They understand server market. They understand hardware. They understand software. They understand open source software. And they're ready to help you get the machine that you want. You don't have to start worrying about like, well, my boss says we need this and we need it by the end of the month. But, you know, I don't know. We don't quite know what load is going to be like yet. And, uh, but, you know, we need these servers, but are th is this model going to be enough? And does that motherboard fit in the case that we need to go? No, none of it. IX Systems knows this stuff. That's what they're there for. That's their expertise. And they're going to help you get exactly the solution that you need. Just look at some of their customers. Sony, Disney. Noah, Sega, VMware, Adobe. These are big companies, but they also work great if you just need, you know, a new server for your small business or you need a new uh, office backup machine. Go check out the FreeNAS Mini. Yeah, it's right there on the left there. Just check it out. You will not be disappointed. I mean, that, that one on the right doesn't look too mini, uh, but any of their models, they're a great deal, super reliable, and they come with great open source software. FreeNAS, if you haven't used it, go check that out today. There's a new version out. Um, that's very exciting. So go, go check that out. You'll see information on the blog there. And that's another thing about IX. They're not some faceless vendor. They have been a part of the open source community, the web community for a long time. Now they understand, you know, what, what people's needs are. They understand what kind of software you might be running and they're going to work with you to make sure that your server is configured exactly how you want, supported the way that you want. If you're having problems of support with other companies where, you know, I call them, I leave a message, they don't call me back. Or I've spent like 20 minutes on hold. This is crazy. My server's offline right now. What's happening? Now, go with IX Systems. Go to www.ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go experience the best server buying process you'll ever have. Ah, IX. I wish I had a free NAS right now. Just look at them on the, doing the ads and it's like, God, so what, a, what a beautiful looking machine. They are pretty. Yeah, exactly. I have two IX systems. One I've seen, it, it's on, it's documented on the FreeBSD diary. It's in there as a, a dual Xeon. Oh, nice. So this is 10 years ago. Yeah. That server now sits with, I think, Data Foundry. Okay. And they're hosting it for me, but it's on 10-year-old hardware. No, no exaggeration. So IX have put together another box for me and it's now sitting at New York internet waiting for me to have time to set it to up. To actually go get it configured. But I'm kind of busy organizing PGCon right. and BSDCAN. PGCon is only about six weeks away Right, now. I was going to say, isn't that coming up pretty soon? Very soon. And BSDCAN is about two weeks after that. So those shows will be broadcast podcast from Ottawa. Oh, that's awesome. We'll have an international podcast. I'm excited for it. Ah, all right. So now, now we come to kind of what might be today's main segment. What have you prepared for us? I want to talk about encryption. Oh. Specifically, let's encrypt. Now, why do I want to talk about it? Today, we noticed that a bunch of the Chrome, I think, only recently started ignoring uh, RSA, I think it's RSA um, keys. Uh, it started ignoring SSL certificates that are not 
of a high enough standard. Right. Well, they've had and, a pretty the, reasonable march upwards to increase that over the years. They've they've known this is coming, but even I got bit by it. Uh, I noticed it at work today when when we when we fixed something, and then I noticed it uh, in one of my home uh, servers, which has a public. Um, access to it and it happened to be a start SSL cert which which nobody likes now we don't like start SSL anymore uh, so what I started looking at is let's encrypt I spent about 10 minutes this afternoon trying to get it going and failed but that's because I haven't finished it yet 10 minutes is not enough to declare success or failure but that's what I'm at and so what I want to do is set up something like what Peter Wim in this article outlines, because I have a whole bunch of servers which have uh, SSL certs, and I want to have that maintained by each one of them. Sorry, I don't want to have each server go out and get its own cert. I want it all to be managed centrally, and then all the updates get pushed out. Now, how that gets pushed out, I don't know. Some sort of publication system. It might be from... Uh, a public repo and that public repo would be publicly available because all that's going to be in it is certificates and the certificates are all public anyway so it doesn't really matter and that repo would be on a public IP address and it would just be pulled uh, from a private server That that that's my rough idea now I mean, anyone who's had to do, you know, kind of manual certificate management knows how much of a pain that can be. And now you've got like monitors on different sites checking for cert expiration, and maybe they're even from different companies. And then you have to go get the cert and buy it and then go put it on that machine. It's like a whole bureaucracy. It is because you have to pay it off, you have to send it off, get it paid for, get it back. You can run your own certificate authority, but nobody, tr right. how does anyone trust that? Exactly. So I wanted to get a little bit into that idea about not everyone may be aware of why a certificate is important and, you know, what is a certificate yeah. and what are the components of a certificate. So I thought I would start off on that. Especially now that uh, HTTPS continues marching on as, you know, really becoming the predominant way that we connect to websites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's important to understand that that's really where we're placing all of our trust. When you visit your bank or, you mm -hmm. know, even if you're using an SSL-based VPN, yep. you're, this is what you're trusting. Yep. Um, certificates are used in a lot of areas. They're used when you go to visit a website over HTTPS. Uh, I use them uh, on my VPN between my laptop and home. Um, Any time that you're encrypting the traffic, chances are you're probably using an, uh, a certificate. And we say SSL certificate, but it's just basically, um, excuse me, <coughs> It's just basically, uh, it goes back to the old encryption theory, well, well-known encryption theory, having a public key and a private key. And when you go to ask a certificate authority for a certificate, the first thing you do is you create something called a key. And that key, uh, best practice is that key only ever stays in the server it's going to be used for. It never goes anywhere else. You make sure that no one can read it because that key is used for encrypting traffic leaving your server. Is that right? Is that right? No. I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's used for encrypting traffic coming into your server. So basically, 
the certificate is the public key and your browser gets the public key and it uses that to encrypt stuff. This is all very simple. Uh, it's not exactly technically correct. So those of you composing an email to correct it, <laughs> wait. Right. There's a, there's a lot of nuances. Um, yeah. But we're, we're targeting the high-level overview of the things that you need to yeah. know. So public key encryption involves two keys. One is a public key, which everyone knows by definition, and one is a private key, which only you know. And why do we like that approach? We like that approach because it's very easy to, to store and secure this public key. You're responsible only for storing that public key and making sure it doesn't get to anyone else. Um, and then what you do is you freely distribute the uh, public key and anyone can use that. You give that away, uh, someone encrypts something with that, and it can only be decrypted with your private key, which you hold at home somewhere quiet, maybe on a USB key or maybe on your personal laptop. But anyway, that that's the basis around uh, SSL certificates. So when you say that you want to have a certificate, you create something called a CSR, a certificate, where was it? I always forget. CSR, I've forgotten. It's a request. Right, like the certificate signing request. Is that what it stands for? That's Something it. like that. Yeah. Thank you. Certificate signing request sounds right. So you create a certificate signing request, and in there you include the uh, fully qualified domain name, like www.foo.bar. That's the host name that you want, and other identifying information. And you supply the private key that they private key no they supply the key that the they should use to create the certificate i think that's right what they do then is they create a certificate and they send it back to you so you have to trust them that they haven't done anything dodgy with this like they haven't created another certificate in your name um because there have been times when people have wound up creating certificates for companies they shouldn't have created for and so people begin trusting those other rogue certificates, and that's not good. So there's a cost associated with this because the certificate authorities want to make money, and that's what they do. They supply you the certificate. you got to trust them. And this gets expensive, and people don't follow best practices, and things get compromised. Who was it last week that we talked about that Google took to the woodshed? Um, uh, Symantec, I believe. Yes, it was Symantec. So there's been some certificate authorities getting into trouble. So Let's Encrypt came about, and it's absolutely free. Uh, they differ in that you can often buy a certificate for one year. That's pretty standard. Yeah. And so as as Peter points out in his article, when you're only doing a certificate every year or so, you, it's easy to develop very bad practices. But... With Let's Encrypt, they keep them live for only 90 days, but most people renew every 60 to 80 days on an automated basis. Because if you had to renew your certificate four times a year and you had 15 servers, you're renewing a certificate every week. Uh, yeah. So, at least. And that gets very laborious. If you're only doing one a, one a month, that's not so bad. But 
I don't even want to automate them. Yeah, right. So, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of nice how it, uh, you know, that that model forces you to think about automation, mm-hmm. which is probably mm-hmm. something you should have thought mm-hmm. about in the first place, but now you have to. So, if everyone out there goes to services.unixathome.org, you'll see my website in this rack back here, and it has some stuff for Bacula. Um, it shows what needs to be copied over to tape and stuff like that. You're hitting a proxy, and then that proxy talks to the real website, which is on another server, and it pulls stuff out of the database and shows it to you. The server cert is wrong. Oh. It's, old, it's old. It's RSA, I think. It, it, it's a type that Chrome only recently started saying, can't trust this, can't trust this, let's get out of here. So that's what prompted me to start looking at Let's Encrypt. Oh, yeah, here we go. I've got it right there. My connection. It's not private. Exactly. And then you have to click through this thing. and Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. That, that's it. That's the website. Now, nice. if, you go over to the, if you go over to the top left, can you scroll a little bit? Oh, no, I can't. I can't. Yeah, there. That, that 56 gig, that's what's left to copy to, t- to tape. Oh, that's I cool. A, I have a job that errors out. So is this constantly updated or updated by, you know, like Chrome oh, Java? It's, it's a database query. Oh, okay. Good. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's yeah. great. So it just queries the database and sees what stuff hasn't been copied from here to there. It's a, it's a very simple query. Well, it's a fast query. There we it's, go. It's not very simple because I had to take it from Bacula. So you had to deal so, with all their table structure and all that. Which isn't too bad. Um, it's in Postgres, don't you know? Oh, don't you know? You should so, see one of our episodes on a Backdive audience if you'd like to learn more about Bacula and how it works. Did somebody talk about Bacula? I think so. A very, okay, a very good. handsome man with a, with a beautiful you. rack. Th- thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll tell my girlfriend. Now, um, I started reading Peter Wem's article again. I originally read it oh back before Meet BSD because I remember talking to Peter at Meet BSD about this. And went through a few things with him about how he's doing this. And so that made me want to start doing this locally. Because I've got web servers here and there and over there and over there and there and there. And sometimes there might be four or five certificates on a given server. And I don't want to have... It it wouldn't be too hard to do four or five instances of this and get them running. But I would prefer just to have it all central. So... I like Peter's approach here. I started um, looking into Let's Encrypt and put it on one of my servers, started playing around with it. And it seemed to work rather well, except they were unable to uh, authenticate me. Now, how does this script work? Well, you might ask that, Wes. Oh, I would. Oh, I would. How does it work? Oh. I'm glad you asked. What happens is first you, uh, when you first run it, it, this is from memory. You've, when you first run it, it it says, Hey, listen, you haven't, um, agreed to this, uh, end user license, go to this URL, read it, and then invoke the script again with this URL with, with these commands. So I did that and that logged in, created an account for me and then logged back out. So then I ran the original command again. 
And what you do in your configuration is there's a, a domains file. I think that's the name of it, a domains file. And in there, you would do something like unixathome.org space services.unixathome.org. So the first one is the domain, and the second one is the host name you want within that domain. And then you have a config file, which gives your various configuration options. But I think mine only has a URL where it's going to put the certificates and my email address, and that's it. So you run the script, and it connects into Let's Encrypt, and Let's Encrypt says, oh, you want a certificate for unixathome.org. Oh, you want it for services.unixathome.org. Okay, so um, how can you prove that you own services.unixathome.org? Fortunately, there are two easy ways. One is through DNS, where you create a record um, that says, hey, I really do own, D own this domain. Here's this entry that you've told me to put in there. Uh, go and have a look. And let's encrypt, well, do a DNS query and look for this special text file. And it says, oh, there it is. That's good. I trust you. you you're running that domain. Thank you very much. Uh, in my case, uh, I will do it with a, uh, a URL that they can fetch. So often it's uh, services.unixathome.org dot known, known location, something like that, slash Acme validation. I know I've got that URL wrong, but that, that's where it is. Right. Maybe a good, good uh, time to mention that uh, one of the things that Let's Encrypt has done differently is, is the, the Acme protocol. Right, they've kind of taken a novel approach to how how this is done and allows for more automation that we hadn't really seen before. Yep. Now I haven't I haven't delved into the Acme automation, uh, the Acme protocol, but I know there's Acme.sh, which I almost started looking at. But um, my my coworker Mark is using uh, dehydration. Uh, Peter Wem started out using dehydration, but then moved to Acme.sh, and that's what they're using. So I'm going to start off with dehydration. Right. And there's there's multiple clients, and that's one of the neat things is people can write their own clients. You can choose, right? There are versions yes. written in, yes. in shell script. Um, yes. I think the most popular one is called CertBot. Um, yeah. And that, that was originally the uh, the official one, but now it's maintained by the EFF. They've got this nice little website hmm. where you can kind of choose, like, hey, I'm using Nginx on, oh, wow. on uh, OpenBSD, and then, boom, in installation instructions. Uh, that's really good. Do they have one for FreeBSD? Ooh, let's see. Let's see. I bet they do. Yes, they do. Show oh, me. Show let me, me see. Yep. Nginx. Install. Uh, package oh. install Py27-CertBot. Huh. That sounds pretty easy. Pretty cool. Oh, there's a, both a package and a port. Hey, that's really yes. easy. That's, that's awesome. Good. Um, so, where was I in this? Oh, yes. Back to that. In Sorry. this protocol. So, yes. So... For what they do is they say, okay, uh, prove that you you own this domain. Uh, create a file named this, or create a file with this data. And I think they just do it with file name, because then they just fetch the URL. And if the URL works, they say, oh, you really do own that domain, don't you? Okay, well, you own the website. We'll assume you own the domain. It's just like if you control the DNS, they'll assume you control the domain as well. Um, and I've seen similar approaches 
with uh, Google Analytics when they're trying to validate that you own a given domain and are therefore um, entitled to see the statistics that are kept on that domain, um, which I've used a number of times and found them very useful, but I haven't used them in a long time. Now, some of the interesting stuff that Peter is doing in this article gives me ideas for what I want to do here, especially the bit about everything is is pulled to the host. Nothing is pushed to the host. Basically, they set up a host, and it's configured during the initial setup, and then nobody ever connects to it, right. ever. So you don't have to worry about, you know, nefarious people trying to get access because you have things listening for, in, you know, input from the network. It's more like, yep. nope, it only, you know, you have your cron job, it runs this often, it will, mm -hmm. you know probably using SSL or similar verification, go check somewhere else in a way that you can control. Yep. I like it. That's a good way to do it. I really like it. None of my hosts are like that. <laughs> but it's I something to aspire to. Yes, I can SSH into everything. But I, I sort of figure that I'm not quite the... Uh, no, that's not the word. I, I don't exactly have the prominence that, that right. previous... Different people have different so. threat models and yeah. They're not interested in me. Exactly. So I started reading through this and saying, okay, this sounds very easy. I like this. I like this. And he's he, he's pushing through through DNS, validating through DNS. And I don't think I'm gonna uh, I may have to do that because I'll be valid I'll be creating stuff centrally. Uh, I want to try um, I want to try services.unixathome.org first, and then later on I can try the DNS value. I just want to get this domain fixed for now. I'm sure there may be other domains. Um, I noticed that there were a few domains that were saying, hey, listen, this isn't working. Because, yeah, my monitoring does check, DNA, uh, d does check the certs on the various sites. And the main thing that does is let me know that the cert is going to expire in 10 days. Uh, it may be worthwhile when I go to Let's Encrypt to boost that up to like 40 days. Right. Let me know when it's going to expire within 40 days because I'll, I'll be renewing every 30 days. Something that can be Something a proxy like to that. show you like, hey, my auto update is not working. It gives me a lot of time. It yeah. gives me weeks. <laughs> exactly. In order to fix the problem. So if it breaks, like right before this show starts, you don't have to like worry or panicking back. No, okay, I'll fix it on the weekend. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I really like about it. I like the fact that Peter is doing all of this centrally. I like to keep things central. I like one location for creating all the certificates. Um, like he said, they, the initial copy of the key is done through the initial configuration of the machine when, it, when it's spun up. So there's no one actually SCPing in the key. Um, I would do that differently. I would, I would wind up creating the initial key on that server and then, uh, no, sorry. Uh, I would wind up creating the, the key centrally with Let's Encrypt and then later on I would have to copy it over to its final location the first time, just the first first time for each host. Then after that, I don't need to do that anymore. Um, 
I like the way he's doing it through DNS. I like the simplicity of it, but I'm not going to be doing that. Could you um, explain a little more how he has it configured with the DNS? Well, what happens is there there are two ways that this happens. Let me see where sure. he found it. So um, there is just they they already have self publishing of DNS. So all this was was being able to add something in to the stuff that gets pushed out. Oh, uh, okay. That makes sense. So they didn't have to do anything special there. And they, the cert bot is uh, the cert bot directory. Hey, did you just have cert bot? I did. I think they're using cert bot. Oh, neat. The, the hook creates home cert bot DNS extra. Acme challenge foo.freebsc. And then it waits for a few minutes. So that certbot directory is nullfs mounted read only into another jail. It's a cron task in that other jail that then pulls the subversion servers for updates to the DNS zones, also checks this nullfs directory for changes. So if there's something in there, the cron job will see it and say, oh, I have something to publish to NFS. So let me put it into, sorry, NFS. Let, I have, it's a nullfs directory. I have something to publish into DNS. So it publishes it into D DNS. They also do, um, I think they're, they're also um, DNSSEC. I think they're also doing DNSSEC. So basically, it, it all gets automated out. Whenever, whenever they, they run through the script to create a certificate, they wind up creating a DNS entry. That DNS entry is picked up by a jail, it's sent out there, it's, it's pushed out. So it's very simple it's very elegant there's just you know an entry shows up in a directory and it says I got that and it puts it over there and the communication between two different jails is just through a nullifus uh, directory that is writable by one but only readable by the other nice nothing, nothing complex about yeah. that it's very simple um, that's actually quite elegant yeah I like that a lot I have to keep that in mind. If you're not familiar with with what a null, null FS uh, mount point is, basically it's a way of mounting a directory uh, into your instance, but it's not writable. It's only re it's read only. Now there's something else special about null FS, but I forget what it was. Um, we'll right, and you're you're um, you're you're mounting a, a already a part of an already mounted file system, right? That's the key. Yeah. You've got another file system. You've got a file system that's mounted and used by someone else. And all you're doing is you're grabbing a part of that file system and mounting it over here, read only. Um, I know EasyGL uses that a lot for their ports oh, tree. Oh, that makes sense, um, right. So the base jail has, a, uh, has a, an instance of FreeBSG in there. And all the other jails, NullFS, that NullFS mount that ports tree in their jail. So you only have one copy of the ports tree that you have to update. So that way you, don't, yeah, you don't have to deal with all that. That makes sense. You don't have to update the ports tree n times. In the Linux world, uh, I believe it's uh, called a bind mount or mount hmm. dash dash bind is, is hmm. how we refer to that. Same I don't thing. know. I don't know if they're exactly equivalent, but for like the mounting of a subsection of a file system elsewhere, mm -hmm. that's what you do. The, the nullfs mounting of uh, the ports tree is of no use to me now. Because I don't install from ports, I right. install from packages. So, yeah. so that feature that feature is no longer no longer has the appeal to me as it used to. Um, and what was the other thing? Uh, I think they nullfs nullfs mount like bin 
S bin, use your local bin, use your local S bin. Oh, yes. They're all not allowed fast mounted. Rather than having to have extra copies there. Right. So, again, the base system isn't very big anymore. So saving that disk space now that you have huge disks right. isn't isn't appealing to me either. But where it used to be useful is you could upgrade the base jail and only the base jail and all your other jails would instantly yes, be upgraded totally. because they're all not allowed so to do That makes a lot of sense. Where it sort of breaks down is Merge Master. There's a, a tool in FreeBSD called Merge Master, which helps you merge the changes to configuration files, scripts, like use like etcrc.conf. So changes defaults. like for after an upgrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So configuration files that and text files. Right. Um, Arch Linux has pack diffs that do kind of the same thing. Like, hey, this you know, there's a new standard version upstream. You have changed it. How do you want to handle these things? That sounds pretty good. So I have to spend a lot more time reading this, and I have to come up with a plan of what I want to do because this sounds like it's going to make some things a lot easier, and I may never have to. Pardon. I may never. I may never have. I didn't sleep well two nights ago. I may never have to renew another certificate again. That's the dream, right? That's that would be awesome. That's what I want to get to eventually. So you've got some homework. I do, I do, but no time to do my homework. Right. That uh, doesn't that happen to us all. So scroll down to the end of the article, please. Peter defend does, does has a little defensive. Uh, no, Peter is not a defensive guy, but he's got a humorous article at the, at the humorous per- paragraph at the end of his blog post. Secondly, I've had brain surgery just a few weeks ago. I set up this at home one week after surgery, and for the free for the free BSD org cluster exactly two weeks after. If people give me hell for crappy scripting, I have an excuse ready to go. Now. Peter's a really smart guy, and he does a lot of cluster stuff on the FreeBSD project. And he often chimes in on Twitter when I'm posting looking for solutions. And I remember him talking about this one, and I really like it, and I really hope that I get to work on it soon. This this will be my fun thing for working on the plane when I fly up to Ottawa, I think. Nice. Yeah, it's nice to have those little projects, you're like, especially for your home infrastructure, where you can be like... Yeah, it's not super important. You know, it's not like it's not going to make me money. It's not going to do any of these things. But you get that kind of satisfaction of setting up like a really nice system mm-hmm. and then watching it work and not having to touch yep. it. And it just runs and runs and runs a bit like Bacula. Yeah, exactly. Anything else you'd like to add about Let's Encrypt or the ecosystem around it? Now's the time to start getting it set up. If yeah. you've got certificates that you need to get going set it up now and just start using it and see how it goes just set up a a a fake website and see how that goes just one i mean it it seems like if you're especially if you're just getting started with this stuff you know you're already Mm -hmm. going to be spinning up a web server and setting Mm -hmm. things up like just Mm -hmm. make this a part of that process learn about tls certificates all that stuff right now and get it from the get-go i think that's a good way to do it be a lot better yeah and and if you need somewhere to start playing with let's encrypt boy our next sponsor has got you covered 
don't waste any more time. I mean, you could you could go get a physical machine. You could do, you know, there's like a lot of things that you could do. But like if you're busy like Dan or me, then you probably don't have that kind of time. Go over to digitalocean.com. Use our promo code. That's right, SnapOcean. Then you'll get $10 credit. And what can you get with that credit? The best, fastest, easiest to use virtual machines you've ever laid your eyes on. That's right, DigitalOcean. They're one of our favorite sponsors because they're the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server. That's right. In under 60 seconds, you can have a brand new Linux or FreeBSD box in the cloud, ready to go, public IP address. You just write, you know, they, they, you can configure it right with a the key. They take security seriously. They make it easy for you to take security seriously. You know, you, you put your, your uh, public key up there, SSH right in, get going, start playing. They have a ton of great features that'll make this really easy. One of those is snapshots. So you're like, all right, well, I've configured that. Now I'm going to move on to configuring my next thing. Just take a snapshot. That way, if you mess it up, roll it right back. It's easy to go. That's just one of the many ways that DigitalOcean is making it super easy for you to get started, lowering the barrier to entry and making it very affordable. So they start out at just $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. You earned me $5 a month. And yeah, you get a $10 credit with that SnapOcean promo code. So that's like two months at the $5 level or one month at the $10 level. There's a lot of options there. For that $5, you get 512 MB of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte, yeah, a terabyte of transfer. These are like many of the ways that DigitalOcean just shakes things up. They're not stingy with your things. They have all SSD, plus they've got detachable block storage. So you're like, well, I love this SSD that came with my droplet, but I need more. I need more. DigitalOcean has got you covered. And they're always introducing like lots of new features that really really make them competitive with some of the bigger cloud cousins that you're probably aware of that have much less intuitive APIs and websites. And let me just say, so here you go. They've got monitoring now. They've most recently introduced load balancing. They've got private networking for droplets in the same data center. And they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. And I'm sure there's more coming soon. So don't waste your time. Go over to digitalocean.com. Check out all the things they have to offer. They have awesome community pages with awesome documentation. They hire actual editors to take community submissions and turn them into great documentation. They have a beautiful API that they use for everything. Their website, built with it. Their apps, built with it. Community apps, built with it. It's simple. It's easy. It's maintained. Go try it out today. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That lets them know that you appreciate them sponsoring this fine tech snap program and gets you a droplet of your very own. Thank you, DigitalOcean. I might just have to go spin up a new one and start playing with some Let's Encrypt as well. I've used it before, but it's uh, I don't have it. I think it's some I, homework for me as well to get everything automated. I've never used it. Never used it. This afternoon was the first time. I think it looks pretty cool. It sure does. And that brings us to the feedback segment, the segment of the show where... You know, we just listen to you guys. We know you're right. You're our wonderful audience. And this is a time that you guys get to be right on the air. So what do we have in our awesome bag of feedback? It looks like there's tons of stuff in here today. Let me just go find some screens. Ah, there we go. So first up, we've got something from our friend Samir. He's uh, writing about episode 311. So that was just two episodes ago. He writes, hey, guys. I am really enjoying the reboot of TechSnap with Dan and Wes. Ah, thank you, sir. Especially the deep dive that Dan did on Bacula. I would love to see slash hear more episodes like this, even if it means going to a less frequent publishing schedule to allow you guys to prepare. 
Some other topics that would be interesting to go in depth on would include Tarsnap, setting up, configuring, and securing a droplet on DigitalOcean, a networking deep dive, an intro to ZFS. Keep it up. Oh, thank you very much for writing, Samir. We love having feedback. It makes us smile. Uh, and it's great to know what you do or don't like about the show. Uh, it's awesome also to hear. I know I really enjoyed the Bacula segment, so it's good to know that people out there also enjoyed it. I know sometimes things can be dry, or if you don't care about Bacula, then you're like, oh, that's a lot of the show. But as long as people out there are learning about it and it's interesting, yeah. I think it's great. I was really worried that it was very boring and dry. But there, we, we, we had several people via Twitter um, say they liked it, and we've. This is not the first bit of feedback we've had um, through e- the email. So I like how it turned out, but I was uncomfortable during during the episode. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to do some um, more deep dives. I thought he had some pretty good ideas there. Tar snap, I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever used tar, it's like setting up tar. Um, it could be another way to cover some interesting encryption yeah. as well. Yeah, I have a DigitalOcean droplet. That I that I manage. It's not mine, but I manage it, and I like it. Um, since I set it up, I haven't done anything except upgrade the packages and upgrade the OS. That's it. Nice. Networking deep dive. I don't know what I would do on networking. Probably something very basic and simple. Because I, yeah. I remember, I must still have that Unix administrators handbook, network admin, O'Reilly book. I'm sure I have that still. Yeah, networking. Um, at least for me, I'd done some of it, but you know, I learned sysadmin stuff, I learned dev stuff, but somehow, like for a long time, networking mm-hmm. really hadn't been. You know, I mean, I knew like the basic, the basic layers and everything, but I feel like it took me a while to get enough of the fundamentals where I could really feel comfortable and understand enough to like set up my own networks and you know improve on my mm-hmm. situation at home and that sort of thing. So I, mm-hmm. I think there might be something there. Well, even as simple as knowing that a web server doesn't have to start with dub 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 yeah definitely i didn't know that i remember learning that and thinking yeah, it doesn't that yeah you can you can have it anything you want oh and then i, re- I remember le- I, I remember reading all about dns and how it worked and stuff like that and i found that really interesting yeah it might be and kind it, of a uh, sorry go on nope uh, it might be interesting in that vein to do, you know, like not, I mean, it's still a deep dive, but not necessarily deep on, you know, this is how TCP works in detail, but, but something that, you know, explaining like, Hey, you're browsing the web and going through all the different little parts there and, you know, explaining how they connect to each other in a yeah. clear way. I think that would, that, that sounds interesting. There's a very famous, um, Google question about explain what happens when you go and search on Google. Oh yeah. I think I've seen that one. Something like that. Explain what happens when when you type a URL into your browser. And, like, there's a lot of different layers. Yeah, totally. Like, all the electronics. But I I like explaining to non-lay people how DNS works. Yeah, definitely. It's it's basically a phone book. (laughs) It is like Like a phone book. All it is is a phone book. That's a good way to think about it. Huh. Uh, But, yeah, we can do stuff like that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Samir, for writing them uh, some good suggestions of other people have suggestions for topics you'd like us to deep dive on, please do write in or tweet at us or get to us however you like. Carrier Pigeon, that's fine. Um, We'd love to hear more. Thank you. Okay, up next in the mailbag, Aaron writes to us about SQLite. Hey guys, huge fan of the show. You guys are doing a great job so far with the show. Thank you, Aaron. 
I had a question slash comment about the SQLite coverage in this episode. You mentioned it was great for local applications and services you set up at home. I totally agree. You seem to have some reservations about recommending it in an enterprise situation. It is, of course, well known that SQLite is not well suited to the massive workloads that the MySQL and Postgres databases are built to handle. However, I think there is a middle ground where SQLite is very underutilized. The SQLite website has this to say. The SQLite website uses SQLite itself, of course, and as of this writing, 2005, it handles about 400k to 500k HTTP requests per day, about 15 to 20% of which are dynamic pages touching the database. Dynamic content uses about 200 SQL statements per web page. This setup runs on a single VM that shares a physical server with 23 others and yet still keeps the load average below 0.1 most of the time. Frankly, very few websites need more than this, and they claim SQLite has been shown to perform under 10 times this load. The main weaknesses of SQLite are three of which I'm aware. One, only works locally, only allows one write at a time, and is limited to 140 terabytes. Oh, I did not know that. Interesting. Two, uh, it seems to me that a great majority of our... Oh, oops, let's see. Uh, it seems to me that the great majority of RDBM, great majority of RDBM use cases could be supported by such a database. Sure, if you're doing big data, it's not going to work. If your website is getting millions of hits a day and needs to scale multiple servers, it's not going to work. But it seems to me that for most medium to small websites and companies, the ability to cut the overhead of a database server is going to make more of a difference than the limitations of SQLite. Furthermore, SQLite aims to provide compatibility with the SQL dialects of the larger servers. If you design with an eye to eventually outgrowing the limitations of SQLite, you can reap the benefits of a serverless single file database while you're small, and then easily migrate to a heavier server when it's time to scale. I'm assuming you guys know more about this stuff than me. I'm just a silly Python dev, not an admin wizard. So tell me why I'm wrong. Why shouldn't I be using SQLite for small websites and data storage, provided I keep my queries compatible against the event that I may need to scale later? Great, great uh, feedback and good question, Aaron. And uh, I appreciate... I appreciate you going on your own little mini deep dive there about SQLite and the, the ways of use. And those are some great quotes from the SQLite website. What do you think, Dan? I, I, I like it. So, so yeah, it, it, if you have a read-only database, this will work just fine yeah, because totally. no one's going to have 140 terabytes. If you have a read-only database that can be on the same website as the same server as the thing that needs to use it. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it's also a good example of, you know, you don't, the, the old story of premature optimization. Uh, I think he hit it and described it very well in terms of, you know, as long as you plan to, you know, that if you need to, that you can migrate. So keep your queries compatible, aware of mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. it does seem like a great option. Start out, works in dev, you can start it in prod. And then, you know, as your needs scale, you can then invest in the database, probably Postgres, <laughs> that actually meets your needs. And you, you could do, th you know, of course, you're writing your website with PHP. You could use PDO and make sure that it is scalable. You can just change the backend later. Yeah, is that right, what exactly. PDO is used for? Uh, something like that, but whatever, you know, or, any kind of the wrapper DB, libraries. Yeah, Perl DBI. Yeah, yeah, DBI stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but yeah, this sounds beefy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, um, I, I like his, his use case of serverless and those things. So thank you, Aaron. Please keep writing into us. And uh, we look forward to your future letters. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, let's see. Next up, we've got something from Bo. Talking about new laws. Bo writes, you guys are doing a great job with the show. Huh, thanks, Bo. I just watched and also heard about the new laws and privacy going out the window. Something I've thought about but hadn't heard about had not heard about until covered by this new this show. 
yes, now anyone can buy your data. Something nobody has covered is anyone also includes the NSA, CIA, and FBI. Now that pesky FISA court will not be needed when they can just buy that information, and you can be sure they will buy a real-time connection to their databases, and it's all legal after all. They bought it. Of course, they've been doing this for a long time now. They don't need to hide it. Sad state we are in. A word about VPNs. I've had one at DigitalOcean for years, for coffee house and hotel use. It works fine. Maybe with all this, the best idea is to have your VPN in the Germany data center. Germany still respects people and their rights. I'm sure this will, go, this will also hurt international businesses. If you were a German company, would you want anything digital here of value? I certainly wouldn't. Well, thanks for the great show, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Bo. Much appreciated. Ah, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it does... It is a sad state of affairs we are in. Uh, I think his VPN comments very, very practical. Um, it's another great use for you know any old any server that you mm -hmm. have. Um, and DigitalOcean mm -hmm. does make it easy to have data center locations all over the world, as you just heard. Uh, so yeah, Germany might not be a bad choice. And he, I, I actually don't think that you'll be able to buy an individual's data. Right. I imagine they'll sell it as as aggregate data to yeah yeah, but. Or it'll, it'll be, be like, interesting hey, to see how, how abstract they get. Yeah, it's like it'll be interesting. Probably more like deals, right? You know, you're like, hey, I want to advertise to this little yeah. group. You know, I'll pay you, yeah. and then you advertise to the people who have hit these metrics yeah. or whatever. I, I would really prefer it if they didn't get into this. Yes, but but the next the, the next the next feedback sort of indicates that it's not as dire as we yeah. seem to think it is. But I don't believe it. Let's check that out. So this one's from Ezra. He asks, privacy is dead? While I share your view that ISPs shouldn't be selling personal information, I must wonder if you actually understand what it is that SJ Resolution 34 is going to do. From what I have read, it simply returns control of regulating ISPs solely to the Federal Trade Commission. This is a far better situation than before because it means that the only agency is in, only one agency is in charge of regulations. Now businesses know where the regulations come from, and anyone is interested in actually reining in their service provider has a shot of actually doing it. This is not the end of the world, simply Congress correcting bureaucratic overreach. If, the, if you want rules similar to the ones going away, then bug the FTC and tell your congresspersons to do the same. Blithering under the world hysteria about a regulation that has only been in effect since January 3rd will help nothing. So I think he has, there's, there's some points here. Um, I would say, though, that it's hard to consider, it seems very natural to me that if you're going to take away and change this regulatory oversight, um, that you should have some consideration for what's the net effect going to be on people being regulated by this. So it seems like that would have been an opportune time for Congress to also consider giving the FCC or FTC, excuse me, authority to regulate exactly this. What do you think, Dan? Well, I'm wondering why it's FTC and not FCC. FCC seemed to have a better a better regard for personal rights and privacy. I, I can't see that the FTC will do that. Right. And so that's also um, something to consider is, you know, and this is where it gets, it can get really sticky is, you know, you have, we have the structure of government we have, we have the laws that we have. Uh, those things do not always or even often align to produce, you know, what we would consider to be reasonable results. And so, you know, where do you, where, where do you, where does one fall end up, you know, like, yeah, maybe regulation isn't, isn't the cleanest option or the best option, but is that worse than the situation that we're in? 
Rikai just pasted something into IRC. The Telecommunications Act explicitly prohibits the sharing of individual, individually identifiable customer information except, except under very specific circumstances. It's, it's much more permissive when it comes to aggregate customer information, which is where things get squishier and the FCC rules have become more important. So, the Telecommunications Act falls under the FTC, does it? Or I would have thought it fell under the reign of the FCC. I'm not sure. I'm guessing. Oh, let's look. All right. The Telecommunications Act of 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, while you're looking that up, uh, I found the page uh, about a CSR that I wanted to talk, talk about, and it is a certificate signing request. And the key does go in there. The public key goes into the certificate. So you create both the private key and the public key when you're creating your certificate request. And you send the public key off to the folks, off to your CA. That makes sense. Okay. Yep. So um, I have a feeling that there'll be a lot of stuff coming out in the press about this. And it'll be slanted both ways, saying, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But no, uh, I, I totally disagree with being able to collect any information like this at all. Sure, it's not going to be identifiable. Sure, we let Google do it, but we've chosen to let Google do it. We, we can opt out of Google by not using Google. We cannot opt out of using an ISP. I like the deal that an ISP is just a common carrier and they shouldn't be doing anything to your traffic except delivering it as that is what we have paid them to do. I like that. I think that's a good summary. Um, thank you for writing into us, Ezra. Um, I think there's a lot more to be heard about this and we'll see kind of how this develops, what, what will happen, what will be lobbied for change in the new world and what the actual privacy um, considerations and impacts will be in the coming months. So if you have more thoughts, please write back in yes. and we can continue this discussion. Uh, on the same topic, our next author, or our next writer here, uh, Aaron writes to us about internet privacy as well. My laptop has an Intel Pentium B960. Some websites advertising can bring it to its knees. Yeah, that sounds about right. I use uBlock Origin to speed up web browsing and to stop a lot of the tracking. I don't like using it, but the overwhelming advertising forced me to do it. I tried to set up Pi Hole, but I failed. The reason why I wanted to set a pie hole is because using my phone and table to read some news articles is simply impossible. The ads make the page I'm reading jump so much it makes it unreadable. I think we've all had that experience. Uh, I know my ISP is injecting ads. If we can get everyone to use an ad blocker or an appliance like pie hole and ad companies complain, can we just say, you won. You brought this on yourself. Did you listen to Security Now episode where they talked about advertising was stopping a website from being able to be used? Nobody was able to enter information because the ad focus would jump uh, jump the field. The man was being supported by the website. The ad was causing him to lose money. Please don't use my name when reading this on the air. Well, maybe my first name. So we did. First name. Thank you, Aaron. Um, your comments are appreciated. I'm sorry that you didn't get Piehole working. I would say, uh, you know, if it, if it does seem like it solves your, your problem, I've, I've known a couple people who've used it and have liked it a lot. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you have specific questions, maybe I'll play with it uh, and you can write back in and we'll have maybe also talk about it later. Yeah, some websites are becoming quite unusable 
on older hardware. Yeah, I've definitely. Got, I, I have a first generation iPad sitting over here, and pff, web browsing. Yeah, right. It's terrible. Yeah, terrible. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like there should be, you know, th there should be some sort of equilibrium here. Where, yeah, okay, some ads. I get that. I understand that. That's you know a lot of ways that many websites are supported. Um, and if they're you know innocuous, I don't I don't mind. You know, there's plenty of blogs I read where I make sure that my ad blocker is yep. turned off so that they get revenue yep. and all that, and that's fine. But exactly, it's these kinds of things where you're like, you have that one bad experience. Where like, I really need to use this website, and it's broken. Yeah, or just or, intolerable. And that really, you know, suddenly then you have your ad blocker, and mm -hmm. that's exactly where this where the situation we're in. Or, or websites that have a uh, click this click this link if you buy on Amazon. Yes, right. Stuff like that. I, I, I like that. I do that. I mean, I ask people to click on the Amazon link on my page. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I don't want to see a bunch of ads, and often these click clickbait websites. They're just ads. That's uh, all they are. Yeah, exactly. And, and you you want to read the whole list of ten items? You got to click ten times. No, sorry, not going to do that. Just give me one page. Mm -hmm. No, not interested. Not but. interested. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Yikes. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Well, uh, good good luck, Aaron. Uh, I hope I am glad that uBlock Origin is at least working for you. The um, I'm not quite familiar with the B960, but if it's a Pentium model, then yeah, I'm sure it does. It's not the the fastest machine on the planet. Um, so you should definitely look at uh, look at Byhole or other solutions to make it a little bit easier and let us know how it goes. Okay, so that brings us to our last piece of feedback this week. Alejandro writes about free DNS. Do you guys know anything about this service? And the service he's referring to here is Komodo Dome Shield. I've got this interesting-looking yeah. logo here. What is Dome Shield? Komodo Dome Shield is a cloud-delivered DNS-based security-as-a-service, say that three times fast, solution that provides comprehensive domain filtering and granular policies that cover mm. security and category-based rules. Easiest way to block malicious and risky web access and apply company web browsing policy. Simply set extremely effective DNS-based security for your company. You, you think he wrote in to get a free ad? That is possible. That but is he may possible. just be curious. Yeah. I, I don't know them. I I've also don't know them. them. Um, wow. But, it, I mean, it sounds like it might be useful. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, cloud-based services are other things. It's, it's not always necessarily things that you couldn't do. Uh, it just probably provides it as an easy service that you can integrate with. So then you just have to walk that line of, you know, how much do you trust them? What kind of information and control can you afford to give up? And yeah. You know what's your what's your threat model, security model, and how is your infrastructure configured? There's a lot. There's a lot there to even begin to kind of evaluate if this service makes sense. Hmm. Wow. Do you Maybe run we'll find your out. own DNS servers, or do you use a DNS provider? Uh, uh, at home, uh, in house here, I have two DNS, three DNS servers, one master, two slaves. Um, Bind or uh, other things. Yes, bind. And they have domains here that are internal, like int.unixathome.org. Oh, okay. yeah. they, they provide access to all the stuff that's inside here and to VPN hosts and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but for the public domain servers, I have a, a hidden uh, bind server and then three or four, I think it's three public uh, bind servers 
and then some friends provide uh, secondary for other domains. Oh, nice. But, but in general, I just publish and it goes out. See, right there, just having like the having the hidden master and that kind of stuff, that might be some interesting uh, networking or DNS mm-hmm. deep dive topics mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. there. Yep. Uh, I know I, I've been One using uh, Hurricane Electric as my DNS provider, and I've been very satisfied with it just for my own small, you know, personal stuff. I use them for IPv6 tunnels. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah, I have one of those too. They're they're a neat company. Um, I see them a lot at some other. You know, they they have a good presence at community talks and conferences and that yep. kind of stuff too. If anyone listening works for Verizon, let me know when I can get IPv6 on FiOS, please. I would like it, please. It's Thank the future. You. So I think that wraps up this week's feedback. Uh, it was an awesome mailbag this week, so thank you, everyone. Keep it up. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com or find us on Twitter. Um, contribute. Uh, you can also head over to techsnap.reddit.com. You can submit things there. Um, please do send us stuff. We love hearing from our audience, fans, critics, everything in between. Um, send us something interesting. We'll be sure to cover it on the show. And uh, we'll see you next week's feedback segment. And that brings us to this week's roundup, this portion of the show where we cover stories we don't just don't have enough time to do a deep dive on, but we still think it's interesting. We think you guys will enjoy checking it out. uh, And that's why we call it the roundup. So first up this week, it's a little smaller roundup, just a light roundup, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that, natural variability. But that means that each story we've got, hey, it's extra punch this week. It is. Now, we have in the past talked about malware and vicious things in TVs. Like yeah. someone installs something on your TV and it listens to you. But that was actually the vendor, wasn't it? The, vet, the yeah, vendor. Yeah, well, there's been some stuff like co- Vizio, I believe, uh, was doing yep. that. Big lawsuit there. And then the other well, story we had was a, was a Samsung vulnerability, right? Well, that came out of the uh, Vault 7 CIA stuff. But that crucially meant that you had to plug a USB into the TV to infect it. And if you had not upgraded the firmware, if you had upgraded the firmware, right. you weren't vulnerable at all. There's a Samsung out there. Yeah, I have one of them. It's a nice too. one, but it's too late. It, it, the later version it wasn't vulnerable to it. Excellent. But this goes one step further. You no longer need physical access. You just need to put the attack code in the broadcast signal. This is a little terrifying as someone who uh, does watch over the air. The only TV I have at home is over the air TV. So I would be a prime candidate. HD TV? Yeah. Over the air HD is pretty good. It is really good. Yeah. I think it's uh, a lot of times there's less compression applied than over cable. Wasn't it the FCC that mandated that they had to continue broadcasting in in high def? Mm -hmm. Wasn't that the FCC looking? (laughs) Sorry. Um, yeah, back to this. So, yeah, th- th- this is very interesting. Um, I have not read the article in full because, well, I didn't have time. But I do like it, and I'm going to read it later. And if anyone wants to send in a summary in case I don't wind reading it, wind up reading it, you have a look. Yeah, but the the basic idea was, was just that there's a proof-of-concept exploit that uh, you can have your own low-power transmitter, and then if the TVs were to tune that signal from the from your own you know, hack transmitter, that can expose vulnerabilities in the TV, yes. and then, then it's owned. Um, mm-hmm. So do check it out and let us know what you think. Okay, next up in the roundup, we've got a story from Spotify. 
this is a long story and it goes into a lot of detail about how they do their DNS. And if you scroll down to the first diagram, you will see that they do have a stealthy primary. What did I call mine? A hidden primary hidden, or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah, hidden. So basically, you 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 maintain your DNS records in a server that is not publicly available. You firewall it off so no one can get to it. But you open it up so all your public servers can get to it and pull down the changes. Well, the changes actually get pushed and sort of pulled, but that, that's how it works. Um, and yeah. They then go into a whole lot of other detail. And now this service discovery is very interesting. SRV records. You may have never heard of SRV records, but imagine that your application starts up and says, hey, listen, I need an LDAP server. Show me an LDAP server. Where's an LDAP server? Well, you can do a, a query for SRV records, and it'll say, these are LDAP servers. There you go. So you never have to hard code in the names of your LDAP servers, for example. Right. I've seen it used uh, in, uh, in VoIP SIP applications as well. I think mm -hmm. they, they use it there as well. I would like Jira to do that. <sighs> if there's anyone around who works for Jira, SRV records is a very good idea, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> I like it. I, I also really appreciate the amount of detail here. Uh, well, they have some good diagrams, and uh, ah. it's just neat to see, you know, like obviously a very successful technical organization, and mm -hmm. given given some nice access that I feel like, you know, years ago you might not see this kind of thing being publicized uh, and showing all the ways they use a lot of open source software and some of their own software to to make things happen. Well, this may be interesting for me to read to see how I might change what I'm doing. And I'm, yeah, I'm right. a slightly smaller scale than <laughs> Spotify. Do you stream music too? Can I tune into uh, Dan's live stream? Uh, no. <laughs> Maybe next week. Maybe next week. Okay, well, that brings us to the final roundup item. This one's kind of fun. This asks the question, what killed Adobe Flash? And are we sad about it? Um, when we're talking about ads earlier, I thought of Flash, because a lot of ads were Flash ads. Some websites were just Flash. You go in and you click on something, and it goes to something else, and it goes to something else. And sometimes you have these websites where you click and go to another page, but it's all um, frames. So you can't copy and paste the URL and go back to where you were. I want to find this page again. Make it a reproducible URL. Excuse me. So, starts off because there was another post that a, that a former developer of Flash read, and basically, uh, this other article uh, said something about what Steve Jobs said about Flash. It it was very famous when it came out at the time, but the comment on Steve Jobs' post was, if it had been an angry rant, it would have been easily dismissed without needing to be factually refuted. That's just Jaws being a prick again. The fact that it wasn't angry, and because it was all true, made it impossible to refute. So that, that's what someone wrote, claiming that's the reason why Flash died. But this former Adobe employee who worked on Flash says, I worked on Flash, and I worked on the thing that actually killed Flash. So you might ask, what was that thing? Yeah, what was that thing? He never said what that thing is. Ugh. 
Interesting. Interesting. Huh. So now, further on in, in this post, they said they he John Gruber responding to that blog post says, to be clear, I don't think Jobs' letter killed Flash. What killed Flash was Apple's decision not to support it on iOS, and iOS being so popular. So, and the reason they decided not to support it on iOS, I think, is because of battery. At least that's what they're saying here. Right. Because Android tried to support it, and the results were abysmal. Web page scrolling stuttered, and video playback through Flash Player half the battery life compared to non-flash playback. So when you're talking batteries on laptop on uh, cell phones, yeah, anything that's taken a lot of power ain't going to be popular. Today, uh, today I imagine that they would, you know, also have security concerns or other things. And mm-hmm. It also mm-hmm. seems like it might um, circumvent, you know, that Apple in particular likes to maintain pretty tight control of their ecosystem. So it, flash it, seems it like a lot nice. of power to give to people. Yeah. It would be nice to find out what this guy was working yeah. on. Kill Flash. Like Adobe Air, maybe? I, I have no idea. We'll just be left with speculation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, that looks like we've reached the end of the TechSnap program. Dan, do you have any final thoughts or words for our fine audience? If anyone's done uh, run dehydrated and want to share their story, write in this week, please. Please do. So that's the end of our program this week. Uh, this has been episode 313 of the TechSnap program. If you liked it, if you didn't like it, if you just want to say hi to us, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives of this show, the archives of the past generation, and a bunch of other really cool shows that you should check out. Plus, there you can find contact information. There you can, you know, that's how you can send feedback to us. Or we have an awesome calendar robot. Yeah, that's right. Calendar robot. Uh, there it'll tell you when we're here live you can join our awesome irc room be part of the experience we have a lot of fun and hey irc room you're a lot of help too we appreciate you i'm at west Payne on the twitter sphere he is TechSnap dan so please reach us out to this there we love hearing from our fine audience and make sure you stay tuned join us next week for your next episode of TechSnap. <laughs>